It's trash day, I'm putting you out, it's trash day. Putting you out, it's trash day. Putting you out of my mind. It's trash day, I'm putting you out, it's trash day. I'm putting you out, trash day, I'm putting you out of my mind. Now I'm gonna clean up, now I'm gonna clean up, now I'm gonna clean up the house. Taking all your garbage, taking all your garbage, taking all your garbage. Welcome to Can Crusher Spotlight. This is going to be a new series that we do for a foreseeable future. As I sit down with wrestlers and talk to them. It's just an interview show for the professional wrestler. You know, if you're just hearing this for the first time, uh, send us an email at cancrusher69 at gmail.com. Come on the show. We're always wel- welcoming anyone. You know, we'll set up a time, get an interview, and uh, we'll go from there. I want to thank Chad Miller and Al Snow from Ohio Valley Wrestling. This kind of all blossomed from their interview about a month ago on Can Crusher. So, first one, two... Uh, to the show is Jay Bradley. Jay has had a 20-year career, you know, transitioning back into Ohio Valley Wrestling. This interview that I recorded this past Tuesday, wow, uh, Jay has had a wonderful career. And guys, sit down and enjoy this interview after a message from Collar and Elbow. Wrestling. A love and a passion we all share. I've started a wrestling brand. The wrestling brand. A brand founded on the aspects of wrestling. Two entities working together to create a product that connect emotionally for people everywhere. Collar and elbow is the brand. Passion and love for wrestling is the drive. I am Al Snow, and this is Collar and Elbow, the wrestling brand. And welcome back to Can Crushers. Folks, we have one hell of a guest. He has been in the business for 20 years. You've seen him on WWE, TNA. He's been in House of Hardcore. He's been to Japan, Ohio Valley Wrestling. And most recently, he's been part of the 70th anniversary for NWA. Folks, welcome to the show, Jay Bradley. Hey, man, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I uh, appreciate the outlet. Yeah, no problem. Like I, like we said off the air, a friend of a friend, and we get connected, and that's what wrestling is about, right? Uh, yeah, I think wrestling, especially nowadays, uh, you know, social media has changed so much. Everyone's instantly more connected. Um, but I think, you know, the last couple of years, wrestling in general has brought a lot of fans together, being able to share what they like, share interests, share wrestlers that they like. And it's, uh, you know, back in, I say back in my day, like I'm some old hand, you know, we had to trade tapes or, you know, dig up things uh, in the magazines, you know, PWIs or, you know, what have you to find out what was going on in other parts of the world that wasn't on TV in your area. So, yeah, I mean, wrestling has been doing that a lot. I feel, uh, 
you know, it's almost like each each independent or each wrestling company nowadays has like its following, almost like a, a local punk rock band or a folk band would that almost travels with them or uh, something to that extent. So it's kind of a cool time to be a pro wrestling fan. There's never been more of it available and accessible and more uh, excitement than I think in a long time. Speaking of the old man, Jay, I'm older than you by a couple years, and I did the same thing. I, have a, I had a friend in Brooklyn that he got WWF back at the time. I got NWA here, and we were sending, we were legitimately sending tapes through the mail so I could see Hogan against this person, and he could see Dusty and Flair, because we didn't get that. You had to read it in PWI. It, it was amazing what has transformed into wrestling now. Yeah, um, you know, I, growing up, I was much more, you know, I was outside Chicago. I was much more of a, a WWF guy. And as a young kid, it was the uh, the larger-than-life personalities, the presentation, the glitz, the glamour that really stuck me or stuck with me. And when I would see other stuff like AWA or NWA WCW here in the, in the area on TV, I thought it was, you know, kind of a step below. I just wasn't knowledgeable because you know i wasn't watching it for the the action and then later on as i grew up a little bit my my grandfather actually um used to have the old wcw nwa saturday night shows on at grandma grandpa's house so that's how i started to get exposed to those guys we're talking about like but that's like the bill watts era jr era wcw and wwf in my opinion was still you know in the boom period of their, their golden years so and then you know as i grew up uh, got into my teens, you know, tape trading, and uh, you know the internet kind of started to take off around that time. And you know, I remember, you know, USWA actually used to be on syndicated TV here for a little bit, so I get to see like the old Memphis guys, you know, and seeing Jerry Lawler in a different way than just the uh, the uh, the King version he did. He portrayed as a commentator, but then also I had you know, for a little bit ECW was on syndicated TV here. And so was Smoky Mountain. And uh, I was actually just thinking about that and talking about that to a friend that, you know, as a person at that time was trying to get, you know, thinking about maybe getting into pro wrestling, that I had such extremes because I could watch ECW for the hardcore, the violence, pushing the envelope and the shock value. And I appreciated that because it was so drastically different. But then I still like things like, the USWA and Smoky Mountain because it was just, it was like good old wrestling, you know what I mean? Like, it was about the story, it was about the storyline and the progression and the good guy versus the bad guy. You know, I appreciate kind of growing up in the Midwest here, I got exposed to such a wrestling from all ends here with, ended up you know, with Smoky Mountain, the ECW, WCW, WWF was predominant as Vince had already kind of taken over a lot of stuff, but then also like AWA and USWA, so I had a very wide range of uh, tastes or interests as far as pro wrestling goes. So I, I got to experience that as a kid. Uh, you've actually touched on one of my questions that I was going to ask. Who got you involved in wrestling? You said you uh, brought up your grandfather, uh, got you into WCW, NWA. And my grandfather is the sole reason why I love wrestling. Uh, for the longest time, I, I thought everybody was in this big umbrella that why wasn't Hogan fighting Flair and why why aren't they having the match that everybody wants until I grew up so who got you involved and uh, uh, so on 
Um, to be honest with you, growing up, my mom despised pro wrestling and didn't want me or wasn't, I wasn't allowed to watch it. So I had to like sneak around her back on Saturday mornings to watch superstars when she was still sleeping or early in the morning on Saturday when like some of the syndicated stuff would come on, like the Smoky Mountains and the USWAs and, uh, you know, I'd be at friend's house or my grandma, grandpa's house, you know, watch it there. And it wasn't until, like, later that my mom kind of, like, gave up on trying to, you know, enforce that law. So I don't have one person directly related to it. I think it was indirectly probably my mom because it was one of those things, like, you shouldn't do this as a kid, so you're going to try to do it anyways to see what it was about. And I was always into sports, played just about every sport growing up for some duration of time just to try it all. And and, uh, I was always big into, like, you know, the, the comic books and, you know, uh, action cartoons like, you know, Transformers, G.I. Joe, He-Man, stuff like that. So, you know, WWF at the time was pretty much uh, an amalgamation of all that. You know, you had the athleticism and you had the superhero-looking guys, good versus evil, and that was that. Right. Who was your, off-topic, who was your favorite comic book? Oh, geez, growing up, uh, I was a big X-Men guy growing up as a kid, Batman. Yes, thank um, you. I'm still a big Batman fan. I'm a, obviously I don't read issue to issue anymore. It just got so expensive, so I pick up a lot of trade paperbacks. X Men to me in like the last ten to fifteen years has gotten so convoluted. I don't even know where to begin anymore. So um, I'm sitting on quite a bit of Batman stuff to read, almost the entire fifty two run and Grant Morrison's run. So I'll probably dive into that here in the near future. Wow, you do have a lot to catch up on there. Yeah. Uh, shifting back gears to wrestling, who who did you want to be? It's kind of like a three-part question. Who was your favorite uh, growing up? And if you could have been in that 80s mod, as I do my air quotes, what would your gimmick have been? Uh, who would you have been? Oh, you know what? Like, as who was my favorite? I didn't really have a favorite. I say that as a child. I didn't because... Uh, I was just a fan of whoever they were pushing hard, pretty much. Like, when Hogan was going crazy, like, I was a Hulkamaniac. And then when they started pushing Warrior, you know, I jumped on Warrior's bandwagon. And the same thing, you know, when Jake was cool with the snakes, I was a Jake guy, you know. So, like, I was very much influenced by just whoever the business was about and who Vince was pushing at the time. You know, that's what I got into. Um, you know, as far as, yes, who I would want to be, you know, that's... I've never been asked that question, but uh, realistically, and to be honest, when I was getting into business, like, I almost didn't, and I know, I shouldn't say almost, I didn't like being as big as I was, um, for the reason that a lot of the big guys at the time, they weren't doing very athletic matches. Um, It was much slower paced, methodical, um, didn't seem too realistic at the time. It was just the style that was predominant at the time. And I looked at guys like more of the uh, the Japanese lighter heavyweights or, the, you know, the cruiserweight light heavyweights. And I say light heavyweight like, you know, the guys that were like 220 and under or guys under 200 pounds at that okay. time. And they were just, they were just, you know, so you think back, that's like the Ligers, um, Muda, um, even a guy, you know, a guy, you know, he's like, you know, dare you to say his name, but, you know, Pegasus Kid. Oh, um, yeah. You know, Black Tiger. You know, that that whole range, the Finleys, 
And they, they were just doing things that were just so much faster paced and more athletic, and that's what caught my attention. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to do. But then as I got into pro wrestling, everyone was like, Jesus, you know, you're an 18-year-old kid and you're six foot four plus, and you're over 200 pounds, 220 pounds, 250 pounds naturally. You know what I mean? Like, what are you, what are you watching this stuff for? And then I got exposed to stuff like All Japan. And then, you know, it was off to the races with guys like, you know, I couldn't get enough of, like, Stan Hansen and Doc and Gordy. Um, yes. Uh, little, little, little Brody, Vader, all those guys that were, like, you know, the American gaijin just, you know, over there kicking ass that were, like, you know, the smallest one was, like, six foot two, like, 250 pounds. Like, they were all just these big ass kickers. So, um that was what I would have probably fallen into that mold, you know, back in that heyday boom, just for the sheer size and athleticism that I've been blessed with. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a style I like to employ. Uh, a Stan Hansen throwback right now would probably have me marking out across the board, just saying, just that ruthlessness that he had, uh, probably one of my favorite bad guys. So, Heel, but uh, you know, I continue with the bad guys. Sure. So uh, <laughs> we're now going to talk about you trained in Chicago with some huge upcoming stars, and uh, I'm going to let you announce who they are. I know who they are, but I, uh, for the the listeners, that uh, some huge people went to the same school with, and uh, let's talk about that. Okay. Um, yeah, I broke into. Uh, the pro wrestling business out of Chicago in the camp Steel Domain Wrestling. Um, there's a pocket of just incredible talent looking back on it now, 20 years ago. Um, people who were involved with this camp, you know, it was run by a few guys as trainers. Um, Danny Dominion, who uh, went on to do a lot of uh, upper level stuff, but never unfortunately really stuck or got a big shot. Ace Steel, um, who, you know, uh, early days of TNA, WWE developmental guy, pro wrestling Noah tour for years. Um, Scrap Iron Adam Pierce was there, who's, you know, now former uh, former NWA heavyweight champ and, you know, helping run WWE now. And then uh, Colt Cabana, who's just, I think, has really, I'll dare say, revolutionized, you know, uh, some portion of the business with what he's done with his podcast, because he was one of the first people to do that, really uh, bring that as an aspect to pro wrestling, and you see what that's become with because everybody and their son is trying to copy that, right? Um, including us, but, yeah. Well, then also, you know, a little guy by the name of CM Punk who went on to do uh, quite well for himself. Um, there was a few other guys that you know weren't any slouches by any means of the word, you know, they just you know went about life in a different manner and, you know, settled down as families and pursued other things. So, you know, that, that pocket of talent, uh, another guy that was there helping train on and off was Kevin Quinn. Um, little known fact, um, he was one of the guys with Brian Christopher and um, Scotty Tuhati when they were going to expand too cool. So he was in WWE for a little bit. He toured Japan for UWFI. Mexico mainstay, Puerto Rico mainstay, when that was a sizzling place. So I got a really good knowledge base when I started pro wrestling as a basics, you know, how things were done, 
and a, and a launching point or a stepping stone to continue my career. Um, and I think Kevin gets uh, doesn't get enough due because he's got his thumbprint on not only the people I mentioned, like myself and Punk, Cabana, but like a lot of guys. He trained guys out in L.A. Um, when WWE was affiliated with some camps out there. Where, like, I mean, guys might know like Cena, Samoa Joe, Rocky Romero, uh, New Japan mainstay, T.J. Perkins, former Cruiserweight champion. So like. Kevin's helped out a lot of people, um, including myself. So, again, like I had a really, really good start in pro wrestling, um, and I just you know I was able to use it as a as a catapult to get me further from with that knowledge base. Yeah, for sure. With the likes of, uh, I'm going to stick with two Punk and Cabana. That you know what you learned and trained with is amazing every once in a while there's a there's an indie federation that i go to monthly it's called international wrestling cartel up in pittsburgh and yeah uh norm connor's correct well it's uh justin Plummer oh. now bought it from me okay yeah okay so it was norm okay i remember punk and cabana used to go out there years ago yeah cabana so norm cabana is still uh probably oh, okay. once or twice a year he pops up and just to pick his brain is, is amazing about podcasting. He's a he's phenomenal. Yeah, uh, you know he he took a chance when WWE cut him loose a little bit before they let me you know go. And you're thinking that's fuck almost ten years ago, but he he, he found a niche to, with his personality and his charisma and his person you know his interaction with people that you know people know him for that now and. Uh, you know, think about it then, you know, what was a podcast? No one knew what this was, and he, he found a way that was something new and different and, you know, but make it original, and, you know, that's kind of his niche now, which I applaud him for. Yeah, I, I was just going to say the same thing. You you read my mind. He's uh, he's known more, well, for wrestling fans, we know who Cole Cabana is, but his podcast is, you know, listened to by people who don't even like wrestling. Yeah. Yeah, so, so he's got he's developed a little bit of pop culture following, and, and you know, good for him. Yeah. So we're going to shift gears. 2005 to 2009, you kind of worked with Deep South, OVW. You were you were on WWE, you know, Heat, Raw, SmackDown. You worked with D-Lo. Uh, ECW. I was on all of them. <laughs> ECW, yeah. Hacksaw, uh, yep. a, a guy named Idol Stevens, who we know as Damian Sandow. Uh, you had your Ryan... Your Ryan Braddock gimmick. Yep. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about that. Now, uh, stories from. Oh, uh, shit. Uh, so, God, so many. Um, I signed with WWE right around Thanksgiving, uh, I think of 05. It was unfortunately right around the passing of Eddie Guerrero. I was there that day in Minneapolis, so it was a very somber day. And uh, they actually sent me home early. And then. I had a sh- I went back to a TV about a week later, and that's when I was hired. Um, but yeah, I uh, they sent me down to Deep South for about a year and some change to work under Bill DeMott, Jody Hamilton, um, which then later became Dave Taylor um, and Brad Armstrong and Dr. Tom Pritchard. Um, you know, I like to say I did really well for myself. I was the uh, the Deep South champion two or three times. Three. Um, oh, excuse me, my bad. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, uh, you know, I learned, I, I was inundated with pro wrestling, and it was a good and bad thing. I was in a very small town, 
that had nothing to do for us to do except work out, go to the bar, and pro wrestle and try to stay out of trouble. So um, I learned a lot of things of how pro wrestling is on the major level as far as WWE goes. I also learned about what not to do as far as what was working and what was not working. Um, you know, as far as uh, developing talent, I learned a lot about politics at that point as far as, you know, in the locker room or in the office. Um you know, I, I look back now and I realize what a learning experience that was. At the time, I was so, so focused on just the gym and the ring aspect of it, like, you know, being athletic and staying muscular and, you know, putting on good matches and being coachable that there was a lot that I didn't really sink in at that time. And that was like the political stuff, you know, and, and how to manage yourself in the locker room and it's not like there was anything crazy going on it's just like look back then i just realized like wow like i was so focused on one thing i had tunnel vision on um like you know it was a great experience man like the training was absolutely brutal as times you know i'm sure there's there's a thousand and one other podcasts or urban legends about what went on in deep south as it seems to like get asked about it from time to time like it was rough man you know, from what I hear, John Laurinaitis wanted it to be like a very hardcore Japanese-style dojo where it was just like, you know, only the strong survive mentality. And it was a lot of cardio drills. It was a lot of bumps, a lot of squats some days, you know, jogging a few miles or a warm-up, stretching, rolls. Like, you name it, we did it. Push-ups, sit-ups, and then we would wrestle. Then we would drill. Then we would some wrestle some more. Um, it was a lot of training as opposed to a lot of shows or matches. And how, um, how many hours of the day are you training? You know, is it you're putting oh, an eight-hour shift? It, no, it, it varied. There was usually like, uh, I would probably say three or four hours, you know, at, at, in the ring area. You know, we had two classes at times going from like eight to noon or like one to f- or noon to four or something like that. They would split us up and. Yeah, so that that's that's what it was as far as you know training, and then that you would you would have to take care of your body in the gym and your your workouts there on your own. Um, you know, I really think a lot of that experience like helped obviously springboard me further um, as far as you know the conditioning and you know of my body, and then of like my my mentally conditioning about what this business can put people through. You know, maybe the you know the head games or the mind games. So. All in all, like, it was a, you know, a very good learning experience for me, you know, and as far as a mixed bag of experience with, like, some really great things, some really good things, some okay things, and some crappy things. So, you know, that's life. Right. Uh, how did you get the Ryan Braddock gimmick? Uh, where, where did this come from? Um, well, initially, when I they moved me to OVW, um, just after Deep South, the... WWE office uh, wanted me to change my name, and uh, I, 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 me, and like I think a few other guys. I think like the, I think like Kurt Hawkins and like uh, Luke Gallows and some other people were just, we were just spitballing names and nothing was working. And like I, we were at it like for a few hours, and then you know Al Snow was like, "What's your new name?" I was like, "Uh," he goes, "Okay, why don't we just do Jay Bradley?" And I was like, "Okay, that's fine." So. I stuck with that for the next few years, and then literally, in a very similar fashion, um, I had just got off the plane 
to go to SmackDown the day before I was to debut on SmackDown. And uh, Krista Joseph, who was the writer at the time, who now heads up Lucha Underground, called me and was like, hey, we need a new name for you. Come up with like three to five names and we're going to come up with a few and then uh, we'll see what works. And I don't even remember what names I came up with. And then the writers came up with a few. None of them were Ryan Braddock whatsoever. Uh, so I think when they went into the production writers meeting, someone, maybe even Vince, was like, ah, screw it, pal. He's Ryan Braddock. And that's what I got. So that's where Ryan Braddock came from. That's a great Vince impersonation, by the way. We uh, we might cut that and use that on several different podcasts, just to let you know that. You got it, pal. All right. Uh, so after that run of 2005-2009 with Deep South and OVW, WWE, and, and, and all of those, uh, you hit the indies again, and you, uh, again, huge names that you worked with. Uh, Tyler Black, some people might know them, TJ Perkins. Uh, let's talk about just that 2009 where you were sinking your teeth back into indies. Uh that was a very, I'll say, interesting time because it's like you just get released. For me, I got released from WWE after nearly four years there. And uh, uh, going back on the indies it was kind of like a crapshoot at the time because it wasn't nearly as booming as it is now by any means. Like, you know, people weren't following indie wrestlers as either a, a single entity or as a promotion, an indie promotion like they are now by any stretch. So, you know, from a business standpoint, like the money wasn't even there. Like, you know, I think I wrestled Tyler Black, Black who is now, you know, uh, Seth Rollins in front of like 80 people in Chicago for AAW, maybe 100. Now AAW's drawing sellout crowds, you know what I mean? So it's like it's a drastic difference. Um, humbling was one thing that it did because it's like, you know, no one cared or no one knew what I had done in developmental because really no one was paying attention to it, unfortunately, because like I said, no one was following stuff like they do now. Um, and so I had to like kind of re-educate people like who I was and what I did and, and, and the talent that I possessed. So um, that was one aspect of it. And it actually like, you know, uh, I actually took a little bit of time away after this era just to just step away from pro wrestling to, kind of clear my head and see if it was something I really wanted to continue doing um, and explore other aspects of life because I had just focused on pro wrestling so long um, and I knew that I could still compete in the ring at a high level with high level talent um, if I wanted to. I just needed to take a breath and kind of, you know, do some other things for a little while. Oh, okay. That, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, we all do that. Trust me. I, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to start doing. Uh, so then you, you made your way to, to TNA and you got mm -hmm. in, into the gut check tournament where you fought, you know, Styles and Aries and Hernandez and Abyss. Who so that was, that was actually the, uh, the bound for glory tournament. So I okay. won the gut check. So let me backtrack just to, so like I won the gut check. And then from being the gut check, I was in the company full time. And then they took all the gut check winners, I think it was, and they put us in a tournament and the winner got in the bound for glory tournament. So, yeah, but you're right. I, I rest, I, from there, I went in and wrestled all those guys in the uh, bound for glory tournament. Yeah. And um, 
TNA then, you know, you did that for a little bit. TNA released you. And then it was a year later, TNA kind of signed you again. But when you were in that first time in TNA, uh, I heard stories that you possibly could have been part of Aces and Eights. I actually was part of Aces and Eights, and it was never followed through, unfortunately. One of the horrible loose-end storylines that never went anywhere. So, um, were you one of I the ones that beat down Sting? I was one of the original three that beat down Sting. It was me, Mike Knox, um, and uh, I'm totally drawing a blank. Yeah, but it was me and Mike Knox and another gentleman. And from what I understand, I was to be the uh, the sleeper agent within Impact, helping them. And it just they just dropped the idea and went different directions and. Um, TNA at this time, or has been, you know, was a, it was a crapshoot. You know, there was a lot of talent there, but a lot of things changed as they typically do day to day in pro wrestling, but it just seemed more so, um, you know, a victim of also, you know, creative turnover because you had Hulk and Eric Bischoff as the executive producers for a while and Dixie there, Jeff Jarrett there, and then Jeff stepping away. And then Bischoff, or I'm sorry, Bruce Pritchard was there too. So then Bruce is gone. Bischoff is gone. They bring in Gaburik. And, you know, it was just constantly influx of talent. So who was making the decisions on doing what? You know, and one person maybe just didn't like the idea or wanted to wait on it. So it was never fully developed, unfortunately. But, yep, uh, it was that too. <laughs> so too many Chiefs, not enough uh, Indians, as they say, or that, that logo, that saying, I mean. Uh, yeah, very, very much so. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people put the, 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 the heat, so to say, on Dixie because she was at the head of it. And, uh, you know, I've tried to tell people all the time and people accuse me of, you know, uh, you know, sticking up for Dixie and whatnot. But it was, you no, know, like, yeah, she was the, 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 the top of the food chain, I guess, or one of the people at the top of the food chain. But you, there was like 10 people under her, and you never knew who was doing what which day or who was involved in writing or creative or who was setting the course of the ship because it changed so often. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that goes on. So it's like it's, it just created and it felt like a lot of unease and free-for-all. And this is also around the same time where, if you remember, you know, there was this horror stories going around that, people weren't getting paid for months and months at a time. Yep. So it was all that time frame. So if that puts you in any context of now people aren't getting paid and there's a lot of strife from that. Now imagine what the office is really like when they can't make decisions on the creative end of things. Yeah. Well, uh, hard times. We'll just, we'll just leave it at that as big boss man's music pays in my head real quick. Exactly. Uh, that you jump back to TNA though, and you were Aiden O'Shea, then kind of mm-hmm. a bodyguard for Billy Corgan. I did. Um, that came about when I was released from Impact, uh, or my full time contract essentially. You know, they had expressed that they wanted to use me in the future and we could do business in the future, which is fine. It is what it is. You know, you're never going to close a door unless, you know, you're going to burn a bridge essentially. Um, so I knew the option was always there and I kind of kept in contact with people there. And then Billy Corrigan had been named on the creative staff and I had worked with Billy on some independent shows here in Chicago and he was a very big believer and proponent of mine. Um, so when he went in there, 
uh, you know, I guess inquired about well, what was going on with me or why did I didn't work out before. And they probably gave him the old, well, we didn't have anything for him. So Billy helped create something for me um, with this Aiden O'Shea gimmick or the thug Aiden O'Shea, which was essentially originally supposed to be a tag team. And we were searching for a partner and then uh, just no one became available that we thought fit. Um, and basically it was a take on a little bit of the old school Chicago gangsters, Southside Irish here at Ruffian. Like there's a whole little bit of a Chicago subculture on the south side of Chicago of, you know, the, uh, the, the fighting Irishmen essentially. Um, and that's what it was a take on. And we kind of built it off that. And then when he became an on-camera character um they played into the angle that you know or the the fact that him and i know each other and we're both from chicago so i was his bodyguard or his muscle you know whatever you want to call that that would have went i think that would have went over great uh the whole irish like the murphy brothers or there's a movie out there that is just instantly left my head that i can't think of but they were just boondock saints uh no there was another one with like four brothers boondock saints is yeah it's that too but there was four yeah, brothers that, that just beat the hell out of people, and uh, yeah, that would have been you. Yeah, there was there was a lot of discussion on the table with it that we never really got to accomplish or execute on TV. Um, for instance, uh, I did a series of tapings where I jumped Mirabali Shira, if you remember him, the the dancing Indian gentleman, yes. behind the scenes, and I put my cigar out on his face. And then um, we had a couple series of matches and some other, not a series of matches, but some other interaction that was to set up me and him wrestling each other in India. Well, he ended up getting a concussion, so they scrapped the whole, well, he ended up getting a concussion, and then the Indian tour got delayed severely, if you remember that as well. So they ended up scrapping the whole thing and never airing it on TV. Um Another one of those things that, you know, like go back to what you just said about, you know, the creative and too many chiefs in the Indian, too many chefs in the kitchen, you know, too many chiefs, not enough Indians type of scenario. Like there's just so much chaotic stuff going on. I think a lot of times it was literally them just playing damage control a lot and things like that. All right, he gets injured. He's got a concussion. He's got this. So we can't put him in the ring because of the liability risk. And then, well, we got to scrap the whole angle. So there went all the work that I had essentially done to gain exposure for the storyline for myself, for him, and leading up to a big match in his home country, and it all just gets wiped away in one easy swoop. Yeah, uh, you, you touched on concussions. Uh, I wasn't going to bring this up, but how do you how do you feel that uh, the wrestling overall is taking care of concussions now? Uh, I don't want you to say anything that's going to get anyone in trouble, but... I kind of like, like, we're going to talk about Alexa Bliss right now. You know, it's out there. She's got, she's had a concussion. She's, you know, she's just doing this moment of bliss thing until she gets better. We read it, we read it. Do you think it's right to keep them on air uh, when we know what's going on? Well, I think, let me stick back. Like, I've gotten a lot of concussion awareness obviously at the forefront of athletics and society, medical science nowadays. Um, another former wrestler, Chris Nowinski, is headed up the uh, Sports Legacy Institute, which has spurred a lot of the concussion research along with Boston College. And uh, lucky enough through my 
career, I've gotten to meet and spend some time with Chris, uh, you know, sort of like his awareness uh, meetings and, and, and understand a lot. Um, I think it's a necessity that they've had to do to take care of people while they're in the ring performing for them and in their life after they're performing. So I think the companies are doing a very good thing by, you know, the concussion awareness or the impact testing that they do and the baseline test that you have to be able to pass before you can get back in the ring. And the other aspect where you're asking me is that it's a right to keep them on TV. Well, from a business standpoint, yeah, it is because these companies have invested tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars at time to some of these, you know, individuals as characters. So if there's a way they can utilize that character on TV to still make their investment financially positive and that character is then still viable to them when they're able to get back in the ring as a talent and a performer and a wrestler, absolutely. You know, um, you know, plus the other side of it as a talent, if you're sitting at home with a concussion, depending on how your contract is written, you might not be getting paid. Right. You know, so if they're taking care of guys while they're out, financially still or that's the way they're doing it is keeping them in you know as a a commentator or as a as a talk segment host or a gm you know again that's just them taking care of both the talent helping them out so they can pay their bills and still make a living and also them taking care of their investment from a business standpoint right Uh, uh, perfect uh newinsky had a nice little wwe career too uh I, i remember him as yeah, he he was the the Boston College Harvard guy that yeah, so we know who he is. All right, uh, shifting overseas, you've been to Japan a couple times. You went to Wrestle One. You just mm-hmm. uh, recently did Pro Wrestling Noah at Corrigan mm-hmm. Hall. Uh, you can touch on both of them, but my first question is Corrigan Hall. What do you feel when you walk in there? Um, uh, a little bit of awe. There's very a lot of history there. Like when you immediately walk in, there's like old trophy cases and old pictures of combat sports stuff, Olympic stuff that they've had there. And it's right next to the. It's literally right next to the Tokyo Dome. So I mean, that's right there too as well. Um, but you know, as a guy myself, who watched so many American heavyweights go over there and dominate, like in the All Japan days, and then even when. Masawa split off and founded Noah. You know, Noah was traditionally a heavyweight company. A lot of their stuff, every, everyone in Japan, all the major companies run events at Korokin Hall. Like, there's not a day in the week, I don't think, that Korokin doesn't have some sort of wrestling event or MMA, boxing, kickboxing event. Um, so it's really, really cool historical building. Um, it's probably my favorite place that I've ever wrestled. I've lucky enough been able to do it a handful of times. Um, and just, it, it's, I, it's the best description I can because it was just, you know, one of those things I'll probably never forget, like being able to wrestle there multiple times. And, you know, it was the same place I saw in videos that, you know, Doc and Lori ran out of the audience and, you know, or, you know, Stan Hansen came out swinging the, the, uh, the bull rope, you know, like, that's pretty cool for me. Um, and then yeah. you grab it. And then also with the uh, Japanese fans, who are just, you know, some of the best in the world. And that's not putting down you know, anybody in America or any wrestling fans. It's just as a people, they're so pleasant and they, they, 
they exude gratitude for your athleticism and your athletic performance and your talents or your toughness, whatever it is. Um, you know, and then they, they, you know they, the way they show gratitude, they're very respectful. Um, you know, it was just a wonderful experience to be over there um, with Cork and Hall or at Cork and Hall. Now, in, in 2013, you wrestled for Wrestle One Great Muda's uh, promotion, and you and Rob Perry kind of ran roughshod through it. We did. Um, that was actually uh, put together by Jeff Jarrett. And a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Suzuki, who's been to, he, he's been around pro wrestling in the States and in Japan for years as like a liaison. Um, and Muda's company was just starting off. They had broken away from all Japan at that time. And uh, Muda was doing his own thing. And he wanted to, you know, get a little bit of a rub from the American uh, talent or have a place to send some Japanese talent like Sonata who is booming in New Japan now. You know, he was one of Muda's proges, and they sent him over here for about six to nine months. So as part of that agreement, you know, they wanted two American heavyweights, and Jeff Jarrett suggested me and Rob Terry. Um, that was the second time I had been to Japan, but the first time I really got to stay for a significant amount of time and, and do a full tour. Um, and I really fell in love with the country, man. Like, uh, Muda was uh, just a phenomenal boss to work for. He treated me like a king. We worked. I got you know, you know. One of the things that I'll probably remember forever is me, Rob Terry, and the Great Muda working out at the Great Muda's gym. You know, like I, I don't know how many people have been able to do say they did that, but I've got a picture of you know me flexing like a moron next to the Great Muda <laughs> at his gym. You know what I mean? Like, like it's going on my wall someday. You know what I mean? Like I, that's you know when I start you know hanging up and start putting things on my wall that I've done. You know, it took us out to eat many times and just till we were fat and drunk and happy, you know. Um, I had a great time on that tour. I got to tour with uh, Takayama, who was a big influence on me. And uh, besides Muda on the tour, like, just a lot of lot of high-caliber talent because they just train and take the business so seriously over there. Like, they don't allow slouches. They don't allow people to be complacent. Um, yeah, so I really liked it. And how about pro wrestling Noah? Uh, you were just uh, there. I did, yeah. Um, I did uh, three tours in Noah about a year ago. Um, been in discussions to hopefully go back. It's just nothing definite. Um, I've also talked to some other companies like All Japan. It's a matter of dollars and cents. Always you know, is, isn't have, it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And a lot of people don't realize that this is a business. And it's like, you know, getting me, my big ass, over to... Japan for a month or two. Well, there's a two to three thousand dollar price tag on that in airfare alone. So th that's part of it. You know, they got to make dollars and cents, and the company's got to make money. Um, but beyond that, you know what? Like, I think Pro Wrestling Know was probably in one of my top experiences in the business. It was a company that, you know, even though it's gone through significant changes since Masawa's passing, um, it was a company that I've always watched a lot, and I got to have some. You know, I just, it, it was a great personal experience and a great professional experience just being living in another country, exposed to the culture daily, the people, um, and then just some amazing talent. The guy that's their champion now, uh, Kaito Kiyomiya, you know, he's like a 21-year-old prodigy as far as pro wrestling goes, and I got to wrestle him in some tag matches and just, just you know, great talent on his end, had a lot of fun wrestling him. 
You know, beyond that, I got to wrestle guys like Segura one-on-one who just lost their heavyweight title at Cork Hall. We, I wrestled him one-on-one, you know, wrestling with Marafuji, Goshi Ozaki, uh, Nakajima. You know, I pretty much wrestled the best they had and, you know, was right there, you know, toe-to-toe with them. Uh, I know I impressed a lot of fans to this day. I still get a lot of tweets and interactions on social media asking when I'm coming back or asking Noah to bring me back. And I'm compared to guys like Bison Smith and Terry Gordy to the Japanese fan. So, you know, we'll see what the future holds. I would jump at the opportunity to go back to Japan for any company, particularly for Noah or even all Japan, New Japan, whoever it would be, just for the fact that I, I really it was, you know, enamored in all the culture and the wrestling style over there. I loved it. That compliment of being compared to Terry Gordy, uh, Jay, I would think that's got to probably be up there for the best thing that's ever been said to you. Uh, yeah, it is. It's up there. You know, and it's one of those guys that, like, I've always tried to, I've studied a lot. You know, I don't want to say, like, stole from, but, you know, we're both in the same height and size range. Um, and he was one of the guys that I studied a lot to see what I needed to do to just, uh, not do what he did, but, you know, how, how did he get so successful? Why was he so memorable memorable to this day with an older fan or even a Japanese fan? Like, you know, it was his intensity. It was the way he moved. Um, you know, like, he was just a big old mountain man. You know, and I'm just, I'm a very big, thick, you know, broad, you know, boy from the south end of Chicago that, you know, so that we have similarities, you know, so it's a big, you know, a notch on my belt, so to say. But that's also a lot to live up to, you know? Right. Uh, Before we jump into the main reason, because Chad Miller and Al Snow would kill me if we didn't talk about OVW in extents and, you know, talk about what you're going to be doing there and everything, I'm going to break and say, all right, you grew up in Chicago, so your covers are a White Sox fan. I am a White Sox fan. So you're uh, pulling for Machado then, right? You know what? I would take him, but I would much, much rather have Harper. Okay. Okay. You know, um, and that's just me. I I just lean more towards Harper. I like him as, you know, nothing against Machado, I think. I'd rather have Harper uh, with what he brings to the table on the uh, on the Sox. Well, this, this conversation is now over because I'm a Tigers fan, and I, I just can't talk to you anymore. No, no, no. Kidding. The Tigers are, are futured right now in the rebuilding stages. So. Uh, all right, OVW. Let's talk about what have, what have you seen. This is the big one for me. The differences between when you were there, owned by Danny Davis, compared to owned by Al Snell. Al's been in it forever, more or less, but now being the owner, you know, what do you see different there? Um, no, you know what, the, I, the big difference is there's probably none, in my opinion. Um, Al um, has been there and worked hand-in-hand with Danny Davis for so long there, and so many times, either as when Al was uh, heading up Impact's talent relations and talent development area he was there you know writing the tv and coaching talent and then he was there daily when he was there as wwe's head trainer 
Um, so Danny and him see eye to eye on a lot of the business uh, of what needs to be accomplished at OVW and how it needs to be accomplished. So Danny had a lot of trust in Al and still does to this day um, with that company. You know, and I think there's a lot of people out there, and it's something that I don't think will ever be repeated in this business about um, how many people have the OVW or Al Snow or Danny Davis thumbprint on them that have gone on to have success in this business. Either they went to them at OVW or individually uh, from scratch, having no experience in this business, to you know, having some and getting a developmental contract, you think about it from probably about 2000, 2001 till maybe 2012, 2013, a lot of people who are still involved with this business up and down the card as far as match level and on a lot of companies have worked with these two individuals or been influenced by them. And I don't think someone is going to ever repeat that in this business. Um, I think that says a lot about a lasting legacy that those two guys have. So if you ask me what the difference is, I, I really don't see any. Um, Al's very hands-on, training people, getting in the ring, um, as far as booking the matches, uh, involved with the TV development and production, uh, and producing the show. So, I mean, I've been there for both. I've seen it both. I've worked with them both a lot. And uh, I think OVW is moving into a very, very positive direction. Um, and we'll see where Al decides to take it in the next year or so uh, with the expansions and stuff that they're talking about doing and, you know, at, uh, utilizing more things, you know, like more of a social media utilization um, and things, you know, they just did the 1,000th episode in October uh, with a co-promotion with Fight TV that aired live. Um, so we'll see. I'm pretty excited about what's going on and where we're headed. Yeah, they also did Christmas Chaos, which was phenomenal on Fight TV. Uh, the whole YouTube, you know, they're, they're taping Wednesday nights in Kentucky, and Monday or Tuesday, I'm watching it here in Pennsylvania and doing my report on it for the Can Crushers, and it is just, I'm engulfed right now with King's Ransom, the It Girls, Dapper Dan is one of my favorites. Just that character himself is just great. And just the the young talent, as I do air quotes, is phenomenal. They really are. Who do you have your eyes on? Me. On you? Of course you. Of course yeah, you. Just me. It's the only one that matters there. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Others. Um, <laughs> no, what, what, what I was about to say, too, um, is the one thing that I think I, I've always found very endearing for me with OVW is I'll go back to something I said earlier in our conversation about uh, I had a very wide range of pro wrestling exposure from like Smoky Mountain, ECW, NWA, AWA. I had that all kind of coming at me in Chicago and accessible to it, watching a little bit of here, a little bit there, more of this, less of that, what have you. And the one thing that I've always really liked about Danny Davis's and Al Snow's approach to pro wrestling is you want to have a little bit of everything. You want to have something, you need the serious pro wrestling, um, you know, a little bit of like maybe the, the more of the violent stuff, the hardcore stuff from time to time, you know, the women, a little bit of comedy, um, big guys, little guys. Like, I know that's one thing that Al is always looking at is like, you know, you want to have a little bit of everything. It's like kind of like the circus, you know, we got the clowns the dwarfs the 
the elephants, the lions, the tigers, all that stuff. And I think that's one thing, like, from my perspective as a kid and as a fan, you know, I, I saw all that. And it's not just a, a, a one type of a match at OVW. It's not just, you're just going to get straight wrestling here. Or you're going to get a lot of hardcore here or a lot of, like, weapons here. It's not going to be all girls. You're going to get a little bit of everything, a little bit of a mixture. And I think Al and Danny in the past has done a really good job with that. Uh, first of all, i got to get this off my head. Al Snow running a, a circus or a carnival or something uh, after we spoke kind of is very fitting. It, it really is. So he, uh, he specializes in hurting cats, too, on the side. I don't know if you realize that. Training dolphins is another thing Al does for fun. It's, uh, it's quite interesting. This is for real, right? Yeah. That's I, I thought he was joking about the whole dolphin thing. I let that go, but that's for real. Uh, yeah, that's unbelievable. You just blew my mind. Um, so let's talk about. But what are you going to be sinking your teeth into in OVW? Are you are you coming in? You know, balls to the wall, back to the show. You know, taking on whomever champ may be. Um, uh, I'm coming in to do my thing. Um, I I definitely feel I'm. I call myself the best heavyweight in the world, and I definitely feel like I'm up there. Um, and how do you do that? You got to go out there and prove it. So if I got to go out there and knock some people's heads around and throw them around and use my size to my advantage like a heavyweight would, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, I know Abyss is still the heavyweight champion there. I'm a former two-time OVW heavyweight champion. Uh, I'd like to be a three-time because it is, say, heavyweight on there. Um, like I said, I think I definitely fit the bill at about 271 pounds. Slightly. Um, slightly. Um, and, you know, there's other things there that I haven't done. I've never been an OVW tag team champion. I've never held the, the TV title. So uh, what we do in pro wrestling adds up to wins and losses. The more you win, the more titles you get, the more money you get, the more fame you get, the more money you get elsewhere, and the more opportunities you get elsewhere. So that's what I'm looking for. Um as far as else, uh, I'm pretty excited that, yes, uh, Al Snow uh, has uh, has asked me to venture into the world of coaching and training. Um, so it's a very early stages of getting uh, everything in line with the uh, curriculum and the programming. But it looks like I will be venturing into that in the future at OVW. Um I think with my resume, uh, it puts me in a very unique position due to my experience. Um, I've worked for, you know, three different Japanese companies. I've toured there numerous times. I've done a New Japan Dojo stay when they had one in Los Angeles. I've been contracted to WWE and Impact. I've toured Europe. And the people who I've worked with in my career as either an agent a coach or a talent in the ring with is a who's who of pro wrestling. Um, so I've been there, I've done it, I've screwed it up, I've been fired, I've had to fix it, go back, do it again. Um, and I have a very unique skill set because of that. So I look forward to passing this on to future stars and helping them get opportunities, you know, when I'm old and gray and I can't, you know, do what I do in the ring anymore. Yeah, and if you've listened to the podcast, folks, the list of names that have come out of Jay's mouth is unbelievable. 20 years in this business, and uh, 20 more? Uh, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't doubt it. I mean, Ric Flair's been doing this well into his 60s. A guy like Bill Dundee as well. Uh, I mean, there's 
Like, Gypsy Joe was still bumping until the day he died, I think. So yeah. You never say you never say never in this business, and I've learned that uh, to be very true. So we'll see what the future brings. And I mean, even Rip Rogers is in the ring down at OVW with his uh, his class on the weekends, and he's he's coaching still and rips over sixty. So God bless him. Two more quick questions, and then I'll give you free form. Uh, what advice do you have? What advice are you going to give? You know, is when you're turning into this trainer to, you know, people wanting to get into the business or young into the business? Oh, advice. Take this seriously. Uh, This can be a wonderful business. It can be a horrible business. It can be a wonderful experience um, or it can be a a really bad one. Um, And I mean that, like, it can consume you. it It can take over your life if you let it. Or it can be something that enhances your life and lets you do things you never dreamed of. You know, uh, traveling the world, traveling the country. I've seen about almost every state, uh, about 42 states I think I'm up to. And I've been to like 12 or 13 countries all from pro wrestling. Um, But, you know, you have to dedicate yourself to it. And I mean, you know, it's, you know. It's what you eat, what you put in your body, how you train your body, uh, what you're studying uh, as far as to make yourself better, make yourself more athletic, make yourself more marketable to a smaller company, a medium company, to a large major company. It's all these things. But on the other side of that same coin, you can't let it consume you because then it could be like a horrible girlfriend or a horrible boyfriend that just treats you like shit. Um I've been on both ends of the coin. I've, I've flipped that coin back and forth a few times in my 20 years. Um, but look, if you're not willing to, to put the time into this and if you don't have the passion for it, it's probably going to eat you alive and you're going to waste a lot of time and you're going to beat up your body. So I would say number one thing is you have to have passion for what you do because the passion will push you through the crap and the low payoffs or the no payoffs and the bruising and the hurting. Um you know, and with that, you also have to have that that time away, or that something else that allows you, when you need it, to you know decompress when wrestling isn't going so good. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, some people, you know, I think Steve Carino said it once, like pro wrestling. Some people make millions of dollars. Some people make a million memories. I'm definitely well past a million memories. I'm not quite at a million dollars yet, but uh, I've lived. And experienced a lot of things that if you would have told like 13, 14 year old me who was daydreaming and like, you know, f- freshman year of high school, I would experience these things. I would have probably laughed at you, but I've gotten to do a lot. That That's amazing. Yeah. The memories, the one that still sticks in my head is you getting the compliment of being compared to Terry Gordy. That's to me, that's awesome. That it really is. So one last question and then a uh, free form for you. Uh, what would you be doing if you're not a wrestler? Or would you be like a baker or, you know, a construction no, worker? You know, I don't, I don't, uh, probably one of two things. So I have a college degree. Um, I studied like the social studies, um, history, political science. Um, I probably would have gone maybe either the teaching path if I would have, I got, I graduated with a degree, but I didn't get teacher certification. So I probably would have either gone to that or, um, I probably would have gotten to some sort of union tradesmanship, probably plumbing or electrical. My dad's built homes in the Chicagoland area my, my entire life. So it probably would have been one of those things. Um, 
but here I am. I'm a pro wrestler. I beat people up for a living. And you love it. And you love it. Uh, all right. Talk about your appearances, where you're going, what's going on, where people can get you, because you need social media, right? I do. So if you want to follow me on social media, it's pretty simple. It's my name, Jay Bradley, J-A-Y-B-L-E-Y-P-W. And again, it's J-A-Y-B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-P-W. P-W stands for pro wrestling. Um, I also have a YouTube that I'm starting to slowly grow, might do some documentary stuff about my exploits here in the near future. That's something that's tentatively on the horizon. Um, as far as my wrestling schedule, I'm, I'm fairly solidly booked. Uh, I'll be do some stuff with OVW over the next several weeks. Uh, I'll be up in Milwaukee for Great Lakes Championship Wrestling. Uh, I will be up in the St. Paul, Minnesota area for Steel Domain Wrestling. Uh, I help a small camp out here near the Chicago area right now on and off premier pro wrestling camp uh, where I help some of their guys get ready for WWE tryouts. Um, and I also have some very big stuff going on, too, with the NWA underneath the uh, Corrigan regime with Dave Lagana under the Lightning One name. Um, you know, I was just at their 60th or I'm sorry, the 70th anniversary in October. I just took part in their pop-up show with Tried and True Pro in Clarksville, Tennessee, um, where my goofy tag team partner had the golden ticket for the Crockett Cup, and he bobbled it, and uh, we lost. And then, you know, I was unprepared for someone like Bram to wrestle one-on-one, so somehow I lost two matches in one night. Boy. So, uh, you know, yeah, you, you wrestle two people, or actually wrestle three people in one night, and then, you know, you're a lame tag partner. What do you think is going to happen? Right. Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward to growing with that brand and what they do going forward um, with the NWA, and uh, we'll see where that's headed in the next month. You know, hopefully uh, uh, Japanese tours uh, in my future uh, with one of, with NOAA or one of the other major companies and uh, talking to a few people in the U.K. for maybe later this year, but that's one of those things that's got to kind of pan out because there's multiple promoters involved, so we'll see where that goes. And, and folks, you if you listened, you know that no days off for Jason Bradley. As we were doing this interview, the start of it, he was in the gym working out as as we were doing this interview. So that's the first for the Can Crushers. Jay, well, you know, I had to do push ups. <laughs> yeah, push ups. You're definitely doing push ups when you're on the phone. Sure. Jay, thank you for this uh, amazing interview. Thank you for coming on Can Crushers. We hope that you know we can reach out to you again in uh, maybe halfway through the year. See what's up with Jay Bradley, who you're beating up in OBW. It works for me, man. Wrestling. A love and a passion we all share. I've started a wrestling brand. The wrestling brand a brand founded on the aspects of wrestling two entities working together to create a product that connect emotionally for people everywhere collar and elbow is the brand passion and love for wrestling is the drive I am Al Snow, and this is Collar and Elbow, 
the wrestling brand. How about that? Being compared to Terry Bam Bam Gordy. Jay Bradley has had one hell of a career. And as I said, uh, speaking with him, I hope he has 20 more. You know, we have seen Flair and there's several others that, as we said during the interview, that have wrestled late into their 60s. And Jay's got that frame that he could really uh, be able to do that. So thanks to Jay Bradley for coming on Can Crusher. Thanks for being the first on Can Crusher Spotlight. Uh, We'll be back next week with another uh, professional wrestler to be on the spotlight. And you'll find out on Wednesday's show who it is. Uh, Thanks to Al Snow and Chad Miller for making this all possible. Guys, have a wonderful weekend. If you're caught in this snowstorm that we're going to be getting here, uh, get your shovels out. Or just stay in the house and crack open a beer. Have a great weekend, everyone. (laughs) 